This episode is brought to you by Patreon, specifically the Comic Pop Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash comic pop and find out more about how you can keep the lights on here at Comic Pop. And don't worry, we've got plenty of fun rewards, including early access to videos and weekly updates about what's happening here at the studio. That's patreon.com slash comic pop. All right, let's get on with the show now. Sweeping down upon the underworld to smash gangland comes the friend of the unfortunate, enemy of criminals. A mysterious, all-powerful character, a problem to the police, but a crusade of a law. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Elseworlds Exchange podcast. Uh, I'm so excited because today my guest is uh, Mr. J.M.D. Mateus, um, who I have always pronounced, when I was a kid, Dematis, but thanks to an actual physical interaction that you and I have had, uh, you set the record straight, the pronunciation is Dematis. Is that correct? It's actually pronounced Smith. Oh, Smith. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's Scandinavian spelling. It's, a, it's an odd spelling. But yeah. yeah, no, you guys, you got it right. You All right, good, it. good. Uh, also, I want to set the record straight because every time I see an interview with you or I hear someone talk about it, they, they always take a stab at it and it's always, you know, something else. So wanted to... Yeah, I, I usually try to try to clarify it beforehand so that there's no stumbling when right. we're talking, you know? Right, good call. Uh, if you are not familiar with Mr. DiMatteis or JM, as we uh, as we call him in the biz, uh, I gotta say, you are, and you just don't know it yet, because the dude's been around for uh, an incredible career, has been doing some incredible work, and he is pretty responsible for some of your favorite things in the big two, at the very least. Uh, JM, thank you so much for being here, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot that I want to talk about. But before we do, uh, before we get into your career and some of my favorite things that you've done, uh, let's talk about some of the things that you're working on now and that are coming out really soon that people should check out. Okay. Well, right now, as we speak in this exact second in space and time, mm -hmm. uh, I've got a series from uh, Dark Horse Burger Books, Karen Burger's new line called The Girl in the Bay. Uh, third issue just came out last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Final issue will be out next month, and there will be a collected edition in August, I believe. And, uh, you know, I, I was one of the people that helped launch Vertigo uh, with Karen years and years ago. Yeah. And it's just been – she's also one of my oldest and dearest friends. So it's been really, really great uh, to be working with her. Again, an amazing artist named Corinne Howell. Uh, she's just wonderful. And uh, it's – it's it's I guess it's very much in that Vertigo tradition. It's a sort of dark, twisted, twisty – and very character-based story. Uh, I'll give I'll give you the quick premise, and then you know, and it, it starts in 1969. An 18-year-old uh, girl, hippie of the era, um, is out one night with her friend. She's under the influence of LSD. They're at a bar. She meets a guy. They're in Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn. They go out to the docks together. She thinks for a romantic interlude. He takes out a knife, stabs her, throws her in the bay. Okay. <clears throat> she somehow uh, manages to. To, to make her way back uh, and staggers out, goes back into the bar to discover that in the time she's been under the water, 50 years have passed, oh. and it's now 2019. And she also eventually discovers that in those 50 years, someone else with her face and name has been living out her life. So there's now a 68-year-old version of her out there somewhere. So that's the mystery, and that's what sets the story in motion. That, I'm 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 sold, man. That sounds awesome. That that <laughs> yeah, is it. Really turned out great. I'm really really happy with it. I'm excited, man. The, uh, that is a hallmark to your uh, your work. You have definitely uh, are no stranger to the macabre, the strange, uh, the mystical, and the mystery. 
Um, and of course, character work is some of your best stuff. Like you, you love to infuse character into any story you're doing, whether they have. Right, no matter what types. the genre is, exactly. If, if people aren't connecting with and relating to the characters. If it isn't a character story first and foremost, then it's useless. Right. What's the point? Like, well, it's, yeah. it's always yeah. about character. It begins yeah. and ends with that. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that's out right now, the last issue just came out last week, and the collected edition actually comes out in May as a book uh, I did with my buddy Mike Cavallaro for uh, IDW called Impossible Incorporated. It's really at the other end of the spectrum from Girl of the Bay. It's it's all ages friendly, and I sometimes hesitate to say all ages because I think sometimes older people go, oh, well, then it's not for me. Yes, right. it is for you. Like, no, it just means <laughs> you can read it with your 10-year-old kid as well. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of – a writer friend of mine described it. He said, well, it reminds me of Doctor Who and, and Doc Savage and the Fantastic Four all mashed together. Um, and in a way, it, it has those kind of elements. It's a big cosmic adventure across space and time. The main character is a 16-year-old girl genius named Number Horowitz whose father was sort of this famous Reed Richards slash Doc Savage figure who disappeared when she was very little. And part of the story is about the mystery of what happened to him and her search for him. But along the way, they're having these great sort of cosmic uh, Kirby-esque adventures. And uh, as I said, the fifth issue just came out. Mike and I have worked together on a bunch of things over the years. One of my favorite collaborators did a beautiful job with this. And uh, we're really excited about it. And as I said, if you missed uh, the individual issues, the collected edition will be out from IDW in May. Um, last, the last issue of Scooby Apocalypse at DC is literally out today. Yeah. So, uh, it's a sad farewell to Scooby, which, which is amazing that I'm even saying that because when we first got this gig, it was like, we're doing what? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. That was very <laughs> unexpected. And it was to me too, you know, <laughs> uh, Giffen called me up and said, well, they want us to do this thing. And I was like, uh, but I'm always happy to work with Keith and, oh, uh, sure. Keith, unfortunately, had, uh, did not do these last six or so issues. I wrote them alone, but we had a great time, and we had got enough warning that we were actually able, I was actually able to create an ending for the story, which you don't always get that chance. Sometimes things get canceled, and you're just sort of like snapped off, and that's it. Right, exactly. Well, especially with this kind of book, The Unexpected, uh, the Hanna-Barbera DC books. I mean, I know when they rolled it out, like Scooby Pop was one of the first ones, along with like things like... Um, the the Future Quest book and uh, Wacky Raceland and other things. Right. Some of those books didn't make it this long. Scooby Apocalypse one of those things that not only did it make it this long, but also enjoyed some real success and people really, really, really responded to this book. Yeah, and uh, it was surprising to me, yeah, but it, it turned into such a fun gig, and I I uh, I grew to have great affection for these characters and this this kind of alternate Scooby universe that yeah. we created, and it's, it was nice to be able to actually write an ending where you can really put a button on the whole thing. You know? it's, and, it's, uh, it's definitely a rarity in uh, yes. mainstream comics today for you to be allowed to end something. Yes. And uh, I'll wrap up the plugs. I have a lot of uh, uh, animation projects in the pipeline. Unfortunately, I can't talk about any of them <sighs> except for uh, Constantine City of Demons, which came out on uh, DVD a few months back, which is one of the best animated projects I've ever worked on, but I have a whole bunch of other things and they're really cool and I can't talk about them. That's amazing. Uh, and, <laughs> and the final thing I'll plug is that every few years, uh, uh, I keep trying to do them more frequently, I end up doing every few years, I do a, a three-day writing workshop called Imagination 101. Yes. And I've had people come from all over the country and, and from Mexico and uh, to, to come for the weekend. And I'm doing one, I'm getting the word out early, I'm doing one November 8th through 10th. 
and uh, it's three days. I try to keep the classes small. It's very, very intimate. We talk about all the practicalities of writing for comics and animation and also all the sort of uh, more, more metaphysical aspects of the writing process. And, and uh, it's just it's a great three days. I have a great time. I always end up learning uh, a lot in the course of the weekend myself, not just imparting my wisdom, but gaining wisdom from the people that come. Sure. So I, I really enjoy it when I do it. And I think if you're if you're at all interested in writing, not just writing for comics, but just in writing, because story is story. And what we're really covering is story. Uh, we may specifically get into the mechanics of comics and animation, but we're really talking about story. So that'll be in November. And if anyone's interested, they can go to my website, which is jmdmateus.com and um, go to the workshop section. And there's all the information you'll need right there. There you go. Uh, and if you want to go to the website, it's in the description below this video. So check it out uh, if and when you have a chance, because uh, Mr. Dimatteis, JM is a uh, font of information. You've been working in this industry and in both industries, both animation and comics for multiple well, since, decades since 1894 right since, yeah. 1890, since the since the uh, the animation was created uh, <laughs> uh but no yeah and, and and prolific and you've been i mean like just just talking about some of the animation projects that you have worked on in the past this guy adapted what do you get for the man was everything for just Unlimited. uh one of the best episodes of the cartoon show that and, was the first episode i did for them right and Luckily, you know, it's, it's going to sound funny, but I really wasn't familiar with the story. So I didn't know that it had this great legend and cachet attached yeah. to it. So otherwise, I might have been very intimidated adap adapting it. You know, but other, they just sent me the book. I yeah. read it. Oh, that's a cool story. Okay, <laughs> off we go. You know? Right. And, and, um, and it does carry the distinction. I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know this part, the, uh, that like it's rumored that Alan Moore approves of this adaptation. Right, I've heard that. Well, I don't know whether it's true, but I'll pretend that it's true. And I'll, I'll take it. That. Right? Come on. <laughs> I'll absolutely take it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's this, and there's a there's like a fun internet video adaptation of like a Saturday morning cartoon intro for Watchmen uh -huh. that somebody made. It's like a parody of Watchmen. Like, but if if the people from the '80s made like a classic cartoon show intro for it, apparently uh, more approves of this one as well. Oh, that's funny. I would love to see that. It's great. Uh, it, it's it's got a great theme song and and a really great like <laughs> a great corporate misunderstanding of the property. Um, but yeah, dude, man. So okay, you, you, not only that, you also worked on Thundercats. And the real Ghostbusters. And, and Batman Brave and the Bold. And Batman and Brave and the Bold. And 10 and Teen Titans Go and Be yeah. Cool Scooby-Doo. And then, you know, a bunch of these animated movies. Uh, Batman Bad Blood, Batman versus Robin. Yeah. I was one of the writers on the Justice League Dark movie, then Constantine. And I've got two more of these uh, movies in the pipeline that, again, I can't, can't talk about. about but, like, listen, after hearing that filmography, you know you're going to check it out because, tr trust me, it's, it's all about character. It's all about story. And this man has like boatloads of information and, and, and talent for both. Um, but let's jump into comics. Uh, actually, you know what? Okay. Let's, let's stay in, let's stay in animation really quick, just because I have to ask about uh, your, your efforts in those worlds. Uh, how is the process of working for animation changed from like, let's say the, for some people, the heyday, like the, the bygone era of like the, like the early to mid eighties versus now. You know, it's, it's, I didn't do a lot in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I, I, I sold my first animated script in the 80s to real Ghostbusters, but then I didn't do any animation again, really, until I started on Justice League Unlimited, which really? I think was around 2004. Yeah, that was 2000. You know, yeah. I was actually doing some live action work back then, and uh, 
I kind of stumbled into it backwards because I had written for the live, those of you that remember this little footnote in superhero TV history, the live action Superboy show. Oh my that God. That was on in the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> I wrote about five episodes of that show and, and worked on staff for a short period of time. And through that, I met uh, Stan Berkowitz, who was producing that show. And Stan, if you know animation, he's one of the, the, the top producer, writers, story editors in animation. Yeah. And he, he was, uh, weirdly, uh, I knew somebody who was working in animation, and when Stan was done with Superboy, I plugged him in. It was actually Marty Pasco who was working on the 90s animated uh, Spider-Man series. Yes. And, and through that, Stan launched this whole Emmy-winning animation career. And then a few years later, when he was working on Justice League Unlimited, he said, hey, do you want to do one for us? And that was Stan and Dwayne McDuffie were the two people, my two people that I worked with mostly on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had that whole classic team, Bruce, Tim, and, and uh, you know, Alan Burnett and everybody behind right. the scenes there. But I, I worked primarily with Dwayne and Stan. And that just opened the door. And I ended up writing like seven episodes of that, which led to the next thing, which led to the next thing. Exactly. And, and it wasn't like I said, hmm. A career in animation i'd like to do that no. but that's what's great you know w- w- you know you, you just you just walk through, if a door opens you walk through that's what you have to do when you're a freelancer sure and uh, it ended up being just such an important part of my career and a profoundly enjoyable uh and creatively exhilarating part of my career it's very different you know because when i'm working on a comic um you know the most you're dealing with most of the time is your editor and your artist and that's it and, you know, when you're working on a creator-owned thing, you have, like, absolute 100% control over everything that's going on in the store. You and the artist do whatever you want. TV is a very different beast, and you're working with a whole group of people. You've got a staff there that's planned out an entire season, and they're hiring you as a freelancer to do very specific things. So I have to sort of take off my um, uh, my – this is my personal vision yes. – <laughs> and become part of a team. And since I spent so much time alone in a room by myself playing with my imaginary friends, it's really nice to be part of a larger creative team sure. and work that way. And uh, as long as I remember to take that hat off, it's great. You know, you, I, I often joke, you know, you don't walk into the room and say, here is my vision for Thundercats. You know, yeah. It doesn't work that way, you know. <laughs> You're saying, okay, we have this art going on this season and we have this story idea when we want you to develop it. And so what you have to do is, A, be part of the team execute the vision that they want and at the same time you do have to bring as much of yourself and your own vision to the table so you're bringing something unique to it you know yeah so uh it's it's really it's 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 fun and and um uh recently uh, a couple of these animated things i worked on like constantine was done originally for cw seed uh, so I was working with the folks from the CW network on that, which is different than the usual Warner Brothers animation group. Hmm. So that brought in a whole different uh, perspective and a whole different way of working and a different stream of people. So it's really – I really enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's – it's it, and again, as a freelancer, it's, a, it's also just practically – it's another doorway to make sure that you're paying the bills and paying the mortgage. Sure, you know? yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the great thing with what I do though is that it's another doorway to pay the mortgage, but oh my God, I'm writing these great cartoons with these great characters. You know? yeah. I always say, uh, the, the, you know, some, some days my, my work is I'm doing research, which means I'm reading comic books and watching cartoons, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and I always say if I can go back in time to my 10-year-old self and say, guess what I did today? He would faint dead away. Absolutely. Now, and, and some of the characters that you have worked on, not just worked on, but like helped to define or at the very least deepen in a significant way – uh, would also probably make your younger head spin. I mean, yeah. just oh, yeah. your your influence over characters, like just just the 
I, I, I want to say that you and Giffen have kind of like the authority to say that the reason people really like Justice League is because of your influence, because of your work on Justice League International. Um, that idea of making it not about like capes and tights saving the day, but more about characters interacting is really some of the most like rewarding and like helpful work on like the modern superhero team where it's like, Oh, let's watch these characters interact. It's not about the villain of the week. Although that also helps. Right. Um, Right. Well, it was first and foremost about the characters and, you know, people always emphasize uh, the humor in our run, but the humor was there because it came for the 90% of the time, aside from we occasionally just wanted to be silly for the sheer fun of it. Sure. Um, it came out of the characters. It was about those character interactions. And a lot of what I've seen in recent years in a lot of these movies, Marvel movies and DC movies as mm-hmm. well, it uh, kind of comes from that template. Yeah. You know, I remember a couple of years ago when they had first announced Leg- uh, Legends of Tomorrow. Right. Uh, and they and one of the producers said, "Yeah, we're we're, we're going for the tone of uh, of the Giffen Dimatteis Justice League." And, and and my joke was, "Well, do we get royalties for tone? You know, <laughs> <laughs> if we did, boy, we'd be rich because there's a lot of that tone out there." Oh yeah, you know? I mean, just um, yeah, just the yeah, it's true. You know, you go to the first Avengers movie, that wonderful scene at the end where they're sitting in the restaurant. And, uh, I mean, that's pure, that's pure JLI in that. Oh, yeah, moment, absolutely. Yeah? Um, so. Not just teams, but like I want to talk a little bit about magic and mysticism because um, it's. I was familiar with your work thanks to Justice League and more importantly Spider Man, but my but my wife, who is also a great collaborator on this channel, is intimately familiar with your work because of your magic influence on people like Doctor Strange, Mm -hmm. um, and Man Thing. And so, Dr. Fate at DC, which is another one that and, I did that. that and I Dr. Love, Fate, my who, favorites, yeah. who's a character that like is a really tough nut to crack. Dr. Strange, he his, his character's all in his face. You get him right away. He's got a Stanley origin, so it's very simple to understand who Dr. Strange is. Dr. Fate is so impenetrable for some people, uh, myself included. How do you square that circle with the, with a character like Dr. Fate versus well, someone? You know, what we did was we completely reinvented the character. I think that's really, um, yeah, absolutely. That was what was so interesting about that run. First, I did a four-issue miniseries that Keith Giffen uh, drew. And when, I, you know, when Keith Giffen draws something, that means he's also, even if he's not supposed to be co-plotting it, he's co-plotting because right. he's always doing stuff in the artwork and adding elements. And he's like Kirby, you know what I mean? You give him the plot and then you don't know what's going to come back. Totally. And it's always good, you know? Right. Um, but you know, I had the idea of 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 bringing in these new characters, a, a male and a female, who would take on the mantle of Doctor Fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did the, that four issue miniseries, and then Cheryl McManus and I did a two two year run on the book. And what was great about it was this was also one of the great things about working in comics in the '80s. Even on the mainstream stuff, there was so much freedom. Right. Uh, to do what you wanted to do. And everyone was into, yeah, experiment, play, go do what you want to do. So that book, in a weird way, was as personal to me as my creator-owned books, you know, as yeah. personal as Moonshadow was. And yet it was using a DC character. But again, we completely reinvented the book. Yeah. I had two years, we told a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and completely changed it again when we left. Mm-hmm. And then... The issue after that, it was another Doctor Fate again, you know. Right. So it was, it was really, really, and 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 what was fun about it also was that it really wasn't locked in to any one genre. It was supernatural, it was mystical, but it was also superhero. It was also comedy. It was also uh, a, a book about uh, spirituality and the spiritual search. It was, it was like 
a whole bunch of different genres, like spinning plates, all trying to get them all to spin together. Yeah. And it was one of the greatest gigs I ever had. I had such a great time. Now, is it? So is, great. Go, no, ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, like, is it because, like, because why would you encumber yourself by trying to tackle so many genres? But is it just like, that's the fun of it? That was the fun of it. You know, it was I was writing JLI at the time, so I couldn't help but have the humor creep in. Of course. Um, and then he is a supernatural character, and I am obsessed with spiritual themes, but he's also a superhero character. So I didn't feel bound by anything writing that book. I wrote – I always write to the characters anyway, and that I just – I let them lead me. And, and in fact, when we first started, we thought it was going to lean more into the funny, and then it didn't. It got very serious very quick, but we always mm -hmm. kept the humor. And um, – it was just, but it was really, it was every once in a while a book comes along where I say, to steal a phrase, I get to write about all my views about life, the universe, and everything. Mm -hmm. And it all goes into that story. And uh, Dr. Fate was one of those books where I had the freedom to do that, to really, that was a, a perfect reflection of my view of life at yeah. that moment in time. You know, and it's uh, it's a rare thing. And it's a great thing when you get that opportunity. Do you consider characters like uh, Moon Knight to be spiritual or more cape and cape and tights kind of thing? Uh, he's, I think he's more cape and tights, but he does have that 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 mysticism ringing around the edge of it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I remember Moon you Knight. worked on that character as well. For, for, for very, it was very short, maybe like eight issues or something. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, because he's, he's he's I'm I bring him up because not only have you worked on him but also like he's gaining prevalence. I I always say like he's a character where it's like it's never been a better time to be a Moon Knight fan than now, because of how much you're seeing him, versus how little you saw him twenty thirty years ago. Right. Um, I mean, and you you also have like I mean, you started the trend of like you know JMD Mateo's worked on this character, but you also have like Warren Ellis worked on this character, right. and like right. you know, Jeff Lemire, and it, it just it, and and they can't help but also play with his spirituality, his, his like the fact that he is like a disciple of a god or right. not, <laughs> depending right. on how you want right. to approach it. Yeah, he and Faith both have very sort of complicated backstories. Exactly. Really, really sometimes hard to wrap your head around. Um, uh, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll, I'll, I'm not going to give away any details. I, I've, been, I've written some episodes of the Marvel animated Spider-Man series, oh. uh, and the new season I think comes hopefully maybe in September or something. Yeah. But one of the episodes upcoming it has Moon Knight in it, so I will oh. say that I got to write Moon Knight again. That's great. <laughs> Without giving away any details of the story, yep. but Moon Knight will be there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but getting, getting back to spiritual – okay – You've mentioned it a couple times, so I'm gonna t I'm gonna ask about it. But like, wh why are you so spiritual? What do you, what is it about like spirituality and your and its connection to writing for you uh, that makes it so fascinating and makes it such a part of you? You know, I mean, I, you know, the phrase "Why are you so spiritual?" It's like, oh God, don't label me as being spiritual. No, exactly. <laughs> Only yeah. because I have then I have to live up to some imagined thing, mm -hmm. which is not who I am. I'm just a schmo like everybody else. <laughs> that said. Um, what fascinates me, what has always fascinated me in my life, uh, uh, is is um, and it's what fascinates me in my characters too, is what I call the big why. Why, you know, it could be you know why do we do what we do, or it could be why are we here in the first place. Yeah. So th there's two levels to the why. There's the psychological why, and and whenever I, I approach new characters, I'm always digging into their heads to see. That's you know good to go back to like something like Craven's Last Stand. Okay, why are you running around in leopard skin pedal pushers desperately trying to hunt Spider-Man? What yeah. did your mother do to you when you were <laughs> – um, And then there's the bigger why, which is you know the why that feeds all the smaller whys, which is 
why are we here? Right. And that was a question that obsessed me very early on in life. And by the time I was, you know, if, if, any, if anyone has read Brooklyn Dreams, by the time I was 17, um, I was really, I was, I was on a search. And, and uh, I found a set of answers that really changed my life. So those spiritual themes that, and those spiritual, uh, I hate to use the word mysticism, mm. um, but, you know, I wanted to just, let's just divide religion and spirituality. You know, religion sure. is one thing. Spirituality is another. And it does get into, uh, when I say mystical, I only mean mystical in the sense that I believe that God is something that is real and vibrant and that we can experience inside ourselves as a very concrete reality. Right. Um, but that search fascinates me. And, 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 and so whether it's the psychological search or the spiritual search, those are the things I'm really, really interested in. And so, and those are the themes that will run through anything I do. You know, it'll, it doesn't matter what the story is or what the genre, those themes will be there. And, and that's why I'm so interested in character. And like I said, peeling apart those psyches and seeing what makes these characters tick. Yeah. Well, I think that's why you're such a natural fit for characters that inhabit those worlds or, or live in two worlds uh, where they... You know they have the grounding, the rel- like the the relevance for the reader, but they also are like uh, connected to that question. Like they 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 can't help but have to pursue it. Like characters like the Spectre or Strange right. or Fate. I had, or... I, you know, Spectre was another one where I just had a great. I don't know. It was about three years. Yeah. Um, from the first Legends of the DC Universe story through the whatever it was, two years on the ongoing book. Um, just another opportunity to really, really be free and tell the kinds of stories that I really wanted to, that also at that point in time really, really reflected my views about life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. Uh, and I got to work with Ryan Sook and Norm Brayfogle. I mean, great artists. Yeah. And we just had a blast on that book. That and Fate, I'm, you know, I'm still waiting for DC to collect those. And, and it's like, come on. I would That and, and some of my Spider-Man stuff that hasn't been collected, I scratch my head. And I, you know, I see things of mine sometimes Wait, they're collecting that? Yes, yeah. don't collect that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's and these true. Things that I'm really proud of that that mean the world to me, and they still haven't been collected. You got to go find um, them. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But exactly. I kind of—it's funny. Um, on the on the because you're practical and like a businessman, so on on that side, it makes sense for there to be like a JMD Mateus omnibus on such and such, or at the very least, some kind of like regularly printed collection. But on the other hand, isn't there something about the pursuit? about the like discovery that's kind of fun where someone finds something of yours that like no one ever knew about like oh, absolutely absolutely but just you know as the person who created that work it'd it's be really nice, to, nice see it. to get that book and slot it on the shelf yeah you know and and to have it in a nice edition and quite frankly it's also nice to get the royalties exactly <laughs> so no it's it, true no it, it I mean like know. it makes perfect sense yeah um, yeah but I mean, there's some especially when it's work that you're really proud of. You know, yeah. you'd like to see, and it's you know that someone has to really, really dig. Uh, you know, happily, some of the stuff is available uh, digitally, so people can find it that way. But some of it isn't even available digitally. Yeah, and that's very frustrating. Oh sure. Um, can you say that when you are, because you because you infuse a lot of yourself into the into your work, and particularly when it comes to the spirituality aspect, um, you know you're you're kind of asking yourself that question as well as making the protagonist do the same thing. Um, can you, if you were to read some of your work across the, your your expansive career, 
uh, see you as a person kind of like grow and evolve along with these characters. Like you can see how you were in a different headspace. Like versus... absolutely, absolutely. You know, all writing. I don't care what you're writing. I don't care if you're writing. You know, uh, fantasy about talking caterpillars on Mars. Mm -hmm. It's all autobiographical. Yeah. It just is. Whether you intend it or not, it's all autobiographical. Yeah. And it's funny, I was just uh, uh, on Twitter talking about this, I think it was yesterday. Uh, no, ma you know, no matter what we write, all those characters come from aspects of our own psyche. It has to. Yeah. You know, um, and then the, 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 the interesting magical thing that happens is you're creating these things, you're infusing them with your own truth from your own heart and soul and psyche, and then something happens along the way in the character's take on a life of their own yeah. and go off and are way out of your control and just live in their lives. And I really believe that in, in a literal sense. I, sure. I think that, that these, you know, once, you know, imagination creates things that on some level or plane of, uh, or other dimension, they're real. You know, I believe in Peter Parker as much as I believe in, uh, people that I know in the flesh. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, and then the flip side is true too. Cause then some of you, you come along and you take these characters that existed and you're putting yourself into these characters. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes you're creating things from the ground up, and then they go off and have a life of their own. Sometimes they had a life already, and you're adding yourself to that life. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when you're working in these shared universes, it's like it's all these different people coming together to create this mass. I, I, I have this image. I've always had this image of this giant whale. It's like the story whale. I used, In fact, I used that image in a in a series I did called The Adventures of Augusta Wind to create her own thing I did for IDW. But it's this massive whale, I imagine, swimming through the oceans, you know, and it's mm -hmm. the story whale. And, and you know, we're all like Ahab. We're jumping on the whale, and we grab a hold for a little while, and we put, we put a little uh, sign or symbol onto that whale that's our contribution to the great mass story that it embodies, you know? Yeah. And then at a certain point, we jump off the whale, somebody else jumps on and, and puts their, 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 their imprint on it. Yeah. And that's what it's like working you know, So we're all creating this, this massive mega story together. And yet when we're working on it, it's profoundly and deeply personal. Oh, sure. Definitely. You know, so it's personal and cosmic at the same time. Yeah. Um, how excited are you that Conan is back at Marvel and that we're seeing a big renaissance for Conan. Yeah, well, Conan was my first gig at Marvel. I know. So, which was um, well, really interesting. I I I um, I follow, had to follow Roy Thomas. Now, Roy Thomas is the guy that made Conan in comics what it what it was, right. you know. And there I was, brand new, mm -hmm. and a huge Conan fan, and a huge Roy Thomas fan, and and especially the Thomas Barry Smith issues that I that I think are some of the greatest comics ever done. Sure. It was like one of the most intimidating gigs I ever had. And I was still very new to the business, you know? Yeah. And, and I had a lot to learn. So, you know, it's a hard thing to look back at those stories because sometimes you look back at old stories and, and I can't see them objectively. I just see the warts, you know? Right. Um, and I'm working with John Buscema and Gil Kane. Yeah. And holy moly, you know, it's <laughs> like, talk about a first gig. Uh, you know, part of me would always say, oh, if I could just go back in time and give those guys some different scripts. But you know what? what the other thing, and I was just talking to somebody about this recently, I have learned over the years uh, to honor my younger writer self. Because mm -hmm. a lot of those stories that I look at and I see the warts in are stories that a lot of people read and still read and love yeah. and it means something to them and and uh and um i, I was listening to uh um brian Keane has a podcast 
with uh, Christopher Golden, where they, they, they've they been going through the entire run of Defenders from issue one. Oh, wow. And um, they spent like, I don't know, six or eight months or whatever it was talking about my run and 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 uh, how much it meant to them when they were teenagers reading this stuff. Yeah. And these are two professional writers that are telling me how this work influenced them, not just as readers, but as writers, you know? Yeah. And and so I'm looking back at it. Oh, I'm thinking, I was just starting at Marvel. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Mm-hmm. And clearly, maybe my view of myself isn't accurate. Maybe I knew more than I realized. Yeah. So I've learned to respect uh, uh, those stories, whatever point in my career they may have come out, I, I have to respect them and respect the person that I was then looking back. Yeah. And I have to do the same for those Conan issues, even though a part of me is like, oh man, John Buscema, Gil Kane, I would have loved to have written better stories for them. You know? <laughs> I, uh, I I love that, uh, that, that, that expression of respecting the younger creator because nothing like hurts my heart more than hearing of a creator who says you know like i don't watch my own work or i don't read my own stuff or i i once i write a story you know that for me it's dead because it's out of my system and i don't have to look at it anymore um particularly because comics are such a repetitive medium where like it 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 will come back you know like something that you wrote 20 30 years ago you know they'll they'll adapt it into a movie or just someone just the fact that it gets reprinted someone will just reprint it yeah and and you'll get it and you're like people are like hey did you recognize how great this was 20 years ago and and then the the culture just eats it up and and i would hate for it to be like you know yeah i wrote that 20 for 30 years ago i don't want to talk about it anymore like no it's 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 a living thing that's kind of that's the kind of the reverse was saying before like things like uh you know, back when I was writing Captain America, yeah, I, I loved working on that book, and I and I did. I was working to the best of my ability. I, when it was coming out, I don't remember getting any spectacular response or anything. Mm-hmm. And and there's that part of me go, well, I was younger then. I did blah 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 blah. I didn't really know what I was doing. Blah. But that's that's a run that over the years, more and more and more people come to me, and they consider that one of their favorite Captain America runs of all time. And and it's allowed me again to go back and look at that. Plus, you know, it doesn't hurt that you had Mike Zek drawing most of that stuff sure. either. Um, <laughs> He's so good, you know, and 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 to look at it with new eyes and go, hey, you know, and and I'm so gratified when that happens. Sometimes and sometimes it takes ten years. Yeah, and suddenly we talked about Spectre before. When Spectre was coming out, oh my God, I I remember all I remember is negative chatter because really? it was Hal Jordan as a Spectre. Oh yeah. So there were two schools that I kept hearing from. One was Hal Jordan shouldn't be the Spectre; he should be Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. The other was. Um, you know, the, the hardcore, they were the hardcore Hal Jordan fans. The other ones were the hardcore Spectre fans right. who wanted their old Spectre back. You know, yeah. why isn't he turning into a cheese grater? Why is he the spirit of redemption? <laughs> so, and then once the book was canceled, as, as the months passed and then sometimes the years passed, I ran into more and more people who really got what I was doing right. um, with that book and, and really took it into their hearts in a deep way. And that's a profoundly gratifying. And, and, and the other thing is sometimes to go back and look at these old stories, and it's the opposite of the, oh, my God, I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. Sometimes I go back at an old story and I go, that's good. How <laughs> the hell did I do that? Right. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that now. That's, yeah. You know what I mean? I, how did I come – how did I craft that sentence? How did I come up with that idea? Uh, you know, uh, so the writing – I've been doing this for so many years, and the, 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 the wonderful thing and the horrible thing about the process is – in a lot of ways, it's as much a mystery to me now as it was when I started. Yeah, and that's kind of fun because what it means is every time I start a new story, and it really feels that way, it's as if I've never written before. 
Yeah. You know, and then you start working. Yes, you have this like working out. You have certain muscles that you've been building up over the years and certain levels of craft that you've built up. But when it comes to the kind of mysterious heart of creating a good story, it's it's this it's this magical thing. Yeah. And and so as much as it's still terrifying to me sometimes, and I know it may sound funny that it could still terrify me to start a new story. Um, it's also what's exhilarating about it because it's like, wow. It's like I've never done this before. Yeah. Let's figure it out. <laughs> Let's. Well, and and but it's also not like you're going. How can I recreate that? It's more like let's let's see what we can make today. Yes, exactly. You, know? you have a choice. It's always something new today because it's you know we're working on a computer, but it's essentially a blank piece of paper. Exactly. You're starting from nothing. You yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and then you have to basically kind of like. Uh, split open your head and let your imagination bleed on bleed onto the pages you know True. And, and then well, the great thing that happens along the way when the story is really working is is that it really has nothing to do with you no there's a certain point where the story kicks in the characters kick in and i say this uh i can use it metaphorically but i also kind of believe it literally that there's like this other dimension of story where these stories are sort of beaming through and i was lucky enough to catch that beam and my job is to get the hell out of the way and let that story come out sure and obviously it's going to be filtered through my personality through my obsessions you know yeah. uh through my life experience but the story itself you know when it's really working feels like it's coming from someplace else entirely and that's exhilarating yeah um so okay, you you've touched a little bit about um, Craven's Last Hunt, which I guess we probably should talk about because it's like so influ so influential and it's like. No one's ever asked me about that story. Before. Yeah, I, I had a feeling, uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to really pioneering that 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 landscape. But um, uh, I've heard a lot of stuff. I've seen a, a bunch of your interviews about it. Um, so I won't harp on it too too much. But um, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was this kind of like fever that took hold in comics at that point after Dark Knight Returns came out and the prevailing opinion over there was kind of like how can we do that for Spider-Man no um, that's, that's not how the story that's goes. not how it goes no not in the least okay well, no mm -mm. set the mm -mm. record straight for me sir yeah, it was a, it was an idea that I'd been nursing in different forms for years, uh, and I, I tell I say this, and it sounds fantastic now. But the original sort of hero back from the grave thing, yeah, what I pitched to Tom DeFalco as a Wonder Man miniseries. Really? Because Wonder Man had the ability to regenerate, and I had this idea where the Grim Reaper, his brother, um, kills him, buries him for like six months. He comes back, his life he's been robbed of his life, and it's a it's a story about two brothers wrestling over this. Uh, horror that, they, that they've been through. Of course. And then I pitched it as a Batman story. Okay. To DC with the Joker. And uh, this, I'm going to give you the really short version. If you go, one of the, one of the uh, recent uh, editions has a whole essay that I wrote, and, yeah. I, and it's on my website somewhere too. Um, I, I, it's called uh, The Story Behind the Hunt. So if you do a search, you'll find all the details. There you go. Um, but I, I pitched it a couple of times as a Batman uh, graphic novel, first with the Joker, mm -hmm. but there were elements in my story that they thought um, were too close to the killing joke, which, which, which they were developing at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's um, right, yeah. And, uh, but, I, but I basically took those elements of the Joker story and like 10 years later did it as a Legends of the Dark Knight story called Going Sane. Yes! <laughs> uh, which is one of my favorite stories that I've ever done. And then I so I took out the Joker. I went back. I pitched him with Hugo Strange, and they rejected me again. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't let go of this idea. Uh, this I love this idea of this hero losing 
losing a chunk of his life and being buried alive while the villain took it. By the second version of the Batman story, the villain had, was taking his place, you know? Okay. And, um, and so when Marvel asked me to work on, it was originally going to be just, we're going to be working on spectacular Spider-Man, me and Zach. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to, to come on the book with Zach. Yep. And I said, well, I have this idea. And I went and I thought about it. And, um, and while I was thinking about it, and I've told this story before too, I very randomly, before there was an internet when a writer needed to waste time and not work, mm -hmm. you know, you had to find other ways to do it. So I was in my office thumbing through a handbook of the Marvel Universe, and I just randomly came across the the entry for um, Craven. Right. It was a villain that I never thought twice about. In fact, I always thought he was one of the goofier, dumber Marvel villains. I completely agree. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but somewhere in there was this line and I don't, I, to this day, I don't know if it was established in a story or whoever wrote the entry just threw it in mm -hmm. uh, that Craven was Russian. Right. I am a huge, you know, one of the, the writers that I love above all others uh, in my pantheon is uh, Dostoevsky. So mm -hmm. I love that whole Russian soul, that Russian struggle, that Russian search. Um, I read that and something just clicked in my head and I went, I know this character. Mm -hmm. So I had originally pitched this uh, to Marvel with a different villain. I, and I called him up and said, no, 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 we're using Craven. And and so that's how Craven came into it. And because Zek was drawing the story, I, I knew we needed another character to contrast the two views of Spider-Man. So we brought in Vermin, which is a character that we created when we were doing Captain America. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with, oh, we're doing our Dark Knight or anything like that. No, sure. It was, it was just a story yeah. that I pitched that they liked well, and that's we the, did. That's the thing that I – that was what major my major like hole in that argument because it's not like in any way. It's just – it's it is dark. And that's kind of it. Like, right. there's there's no thematic connectivity. And I've always, like, reasoned, because there's another book about Spider-Man that's kind of a Dark Knight homage. And I, I don't really believe Dark Knight is a template. I think it's a, just a story that is uniquely, like, focused on one character. And if, without it, doesn't work. You know? Right. Um, right. So you can't, you can't Dark Knightify characters. No, now that that stuff was it, it was in the air then. Sure, yeah, like you know what the I mean. So, so you know, so it was influencing everybody in some way, but it was never consciously in any way, shape, or form an attempt to do that. Right. Because the story came from. In fact, you know, I I, I talk about this. Um, the story came at just the right time for the story, but not the right time for me because I was going through a very very hellish period in my life. Yeah. I felt we talk about these characters being reflections of our psyche. Yeah. You know, I felt like Peter buried alive. I felt like Craven half crazy, you know? Yeah, I yeah. felt like Vermin down there living in the sewers, you know? Um, all those characters were like aspects of what I was going through at that time. Had I written that story a year before mm -hmm. or a year after, it would have been a very, very different story. So the, the darkness in that story more than anything was because of what I was struggling in my life. Yeah. And that was my, talk about autobiography, that was me coming out of the grave searching for love and searching for light after going through some very difficult things in my life. Yeah. So... You know, uh, despite the fact that Dark Knight and Watchmen were both in the air, and mm -hmm. you can't help but be influenced on one level, that was an intensely personal, and, and that's the joke again. It's all autobiography. That yeah. was in its own weird way as autobiographical a story as I've ever done. Um, and one of the reasons why it's hard for me to go back and reread that story is because I know the pain I was right. in when yeah. I wrote it. Yeah, you but know the subtext. But that pain is one of the reasons why I think that story has lasted because it's really authentic. Yeah, it the, is. The, the emotions in those stories uh, are completely authentic because that's what I was living through at the time. Right. It's 
the pros in that, the pros in your work is some of the most memorable things that I remember. Like just when the when the omniscient narrator comes in and says something or when it, it, there's a blur between whether it's the protagonist narrating or it's the narrator. Um, mm. I, I always love that about your prose. And the, the line um, I'll never forget when I'm reading Craven's Last Hunt is they say my mother was insane. Right. Just this... Uh, like a character that is for all intents purposes up until that point a joke like you i mean the pointing out where he's wearing like dance skins and he's got like little feeties and you know his whole modus operandi is i'm gonna throw a net on you right. <laughs> and then you you and but you you deeply that russian influence is so there like that 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 morose like cold I like I've been through everything and I you know and nothing like this nihilistic approach is just I love it it's and I think it's so resonant for people because if you're looking for something that's dark and and kind of like badass sure that's there but like there's also a deep character study there about yeah it's it's all it's really if you look at the the story yeah it's six issues and it's really primarily just about Peter yep Craven and to a lesser degree Vermin with a little can, you know, a little hint of Mary Jane around the edges. Yeah, and that's it for six issues. Right. And and it's really, really about Peter and Craven. Yeah. It's you know, it's not. Uh, um, I, I joke that you know, if that story had been pitched today, the way the business is, mm-hmm. uh, they would have said, "Well, oh, that's great. Can we do that for two years?" <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it would have been at least an event. There would have been the the Craven miniseries plus the side books. It's right, right, right. Amazing five ninety six dot Craven's Last Hunt or whatever. Right. But the great thing about those days was, you know, it, it, there was no internet. Uh, a big events, hadn't, you know, I guess Secret Wars. Secret had Wars had. is it? Yeah. And that was really about it. And had they done probably had done Crisis and Infinite Earths, but it wasn't like yeah. a big event every five minutes yet. Right. And that hadn't happened yet. No. Although it was coming. So crazy. <laughs> it wasn't planned as an event. Mm-hmm. It was just a story and that I really thing. wanted to tell. And it was Jim Salakrup who said, "Hmm, well, uh, our editor who said, you know, if Peter's dead in Spectacular Spider-Man and fighting Doctor Octopus and Amazing Spider-Man, that's really, you know, it's going to kill the 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 reality of that story. Yeah. So he was the one, and the first one who ever did it said, "Let's run one story through all the Spider books for two months." Right. No one had ever done that before, and Jim gets all the credit for that. <laughs> we actually talked and to that, Jim about it. That he... added to the impact of the story. Yeah. Maybe if he hadn't have done that, we wouldn't be talking about that story today. Yeah, I I don't know. I think they I think we would. It's just really cool that they were that they that everybody was smart enough to execute that story such that it was because yeah. it because without Mike Zek, you know, and those iconic covers, you know, oh, yeah. you don't, you're not pulling them off the shelves. It's unless you see the name JMT Potatoes on it, but uh, it's just, it's, <coughs> that, that book is, it, oh man, I, I, you know, not to, not to, you know, gush and, about and, it, and, to and to give credit where credit's due. I mean, I, and I've said this many times before, but if someone else had drawn that story, yeah. I don't care if every word in that story was was the same. Yep. If what was happening in every panel was essentially the same, if Mike Zek hadn't drawn it, it was, we might not be talking about it today either. I, yeah. it, you know, for something like this to work, all the elements have to come together. Uh, Bob McLeod's incredible inking, yep. uh, the lettering, everything. Yeah. You know, it all has to work. You pull. Uh, as a writer, I'm a real stickler when it comes to lettering, and, mm-hmm. and, and I really, really appreciate the great letters because people don't understand how important that is to the experience of reading a comic book. Yeah. And if we had had a different letterer on that book, we might not be talking about oh, it yeah. today. I mean, you really need every element to work. No, the scene where Craven's walking up to his own coffin and the placement of the text boxes to, mm-hmm. to illustrate not only what he's thinking but the thought process – 
it, it's all art and it's yes. it, it is it is singular you know it's funny um one of my copies is i got i got a trade and it's this oddly proportioned trade it's like an oddly shaped trade that doesn't fit quite on the shelf really? it's a little wider than your normal standard trade huh. and uh and i always wondered like if that's if, if there was another version where it's like a little bigger, you know, like just like playing with panel layout and composition. No, but, uh, or not as far as I know. But mm-hmm. uh, it, I, 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 yeah, that, that book, if it doesn't have an oversized absolute edition, there needs to be one. Well, ITW did uh, one of those gigantic artist books that they do, you know, where they, where they reprint original artwork. Yeah. Yeah. Do they, they did a, they did a Mike Zek one where there's, one, uh, I think the first, uh, the first chapter of Craven is. Oh, in there. okay. No, the whole. And book... you can see his original pencils, and it's amazing. Yeah, I have, uh, I have that Walt Simonson, uh, Archie Goodwin, Alien, oversized edition from IDW. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the whole problem with those books is where, where the hell you put, put them? them? No, they're on my the floor. Le- <laughs> I have mine leaning exactly on the floor, leaning against my bookcase in my office. It's literally know? where mine are. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I guess I'll also mention. It's funny. Uh, I. What crystallized for me uh, that like J.M.D. Mateus will be for me like one of the top authors uh, of all time is when I realized that my like two or three of my favorite Spider-Man comics of all time are all written by you. Uh, And I'm I'm tossing out this book because occasionally it will come up and it came up more recently now than ever in 1996. It was a book, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man number 241, A New Day Dawning. It was the palate cleanser after the clone saga. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that title, if you never, if you've never picked it up, it, it's a book I recommend to everybody who is looking for a jumping off point on Spider-Man. It's funny how like, you know, when you're doing serialized fiction in mainstream comics, there is no time to stop, right? There's no place to end a book. Right. Um, and for me, rebirth is the book to end. Uh, Spider-Man because of where it of how satisfying it feels how it teases you know the future but it doesn't like there's no big thing at the end at the on the last page where a character says like oh we're gonna like you know something else like stay tuned for more it's just this really really beautiful palate cleanser where like there Peter and Mary Jane are just kind of like we're gonna start over Right. It was just a Peter Mary Jane story primarily, as, as I recall. Yeah. There's a little bit of J. Jonah Jameson in there, which, I, which <clears throat> is so poignant because he is he is influential and important in Spider-Man's life. But, like, he gets two pages, you know, where mm-hmm. Spider-Man shows up. He says, like, get out of here. It's late. Go to your wife. And he goes home. You know, it's just a really nice moment. But mm-hmm. uh, but such a good book. Uh, well, but, thank you. But that thank one you. plus Spectacular 200. Um, yeah, if I had to pick a, you know, if I had to pick a, a longer arc for Spider-Man, that's my favorite. I'd probably go with the Child Within, which was the first yes. uh, seven issues of my run with Sal Buscema. Which, please God, let them collect that one. Yeah, where um, is that? <laughs> you know, it's called. Oh, well, they just collected it in Italy and South America. I and saw all your these tweet places, about it. You know, it's like how, how what, is it? What about here, guys? How, how is know? it that that Italy can do it, but we can't? Like, who's who's uh, I, in I charge? But I don't know. The Child Within uh, is an incredible. Uh, you know, and, but if I had to pick a one issue Spider Man story, mm-hmm. uh, it would be Spec Two Hundred, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, and part of that is just because of what a what a. Well, first it was the culmination of a two year st- yeah. story that we we're building. But Sal, I mean, yeah, Sal Buscema. If if I if there's the single most underrated artist in the history of mainstream comics, yep, 
It's Sal. And I know he, you know, he's, he gets lots of praise, but it's not enough. Right. He is so good at what he does. And I tell this story, but it's worth telling again. You know, I plotted that story out and my plots are filled with, you know, all the emotion and the psychology. And, and we get to the ending with, the, with Harry's death. Yeah. And, and, and I'm writing all this stuff and explaining what the emotions are about. And I'm thinking one, when it's because if those who don't know, when you're, when you're writing plot first, you write a detailed plot, it goes to the artist, he or she draws it, you get the penciled pages back. And then you script from there. Mm-hmm. So I'm way. thinking when we get to the end of the story, I am going to really have to schmaltz up this death of Harry thing. You know, <laughs> There are going to be captions and I'm going to have to make you cry and reach in and grab your heart and twist it. And, you know, and I get to the last two or three, I think it was the last three pages of the story. Yep. And I actually started to script it. And I looked at those three pages and everything I asked for in the plot, every emotion that I did, that I described, yeah. everything was there clear as a bell and i said i'm not putting a word on these pages yeah this is perfection and that was you know that's the beauty of working that way mm-hmm. you, you you know when you're reacting to the artwork um it really uh, it, it opens up a whole other doorway another artist would have drawn those last three pages i would have gone oh no now <laughs> i have to explain everything that's going on in these pages yeah you know, and and that I could have could have killed the ending of the story. That's the danger of working that way. Yeah. But when you're working with someone like Sal or Mike Zek, it's just like to be able to look at those pages and go, no, everything I want to say, he put it in the pictures. Yeah. And I could never praise Sal enough. And it's the same thing. I'll go back to Craven again just for a second. Sure. Yeah. Because Mike Zek is such an impeccable storyteller, because. Uh, you never have to wonder what's happening in the panel or from panel to panel or or you don't have to describe the emotions on somebody's face. All the 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 level one aspects of that story are there in the pictures. So that's why when you read the book, the entire thing pretty much is internal monologue. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm craven and I'm jumping over to the other <laughs> roof right now because Spider-Man's there and I'm going to punch him, mm-hmm. which sometimes we have to do in those situations because the artwork's not clear. Yeah. Um, with Mike, everything is crystal clear. The surface emotions are crystal clear. So I can dive below that and do all the internal monologue and all the psychology and all the, the voices and counter voices in someone's head. If someone else had drawn that story, yeah. I might not have had the freedom to do that because I would have had to be explaining things that should have been explained by the pictures. That's true. But, uh, but not to discount you, uh, there's, you know, it, there's this beautiful synergy between your writing and the lettering when it's done really, really well that mm-hmm. will stick with you forever. And I know that the, anybody watching or listening to the show is going to be like, oh, yeah, I can think of at least a couple of examples of books where it's like, I remember vividly images. And some of them aren't from the most celebrated runs. I particularly recall an, epi- an issue that you wrote in which Spider-Man's walking through Ravencroft. It's during the Clone Saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which he collapses and he is recalling all the names of people he's lost and they kind of like flow together into like one word. And it, it's, it, it really demonstrates like the agony that a person actually goes through. If you've ever experienced as, as, as some of us know, like true misery and agony, like that kind of visualization of, of, of emotional distress. Um, it's hard to accomplish and it's hard to convey. And mm-hmm. you know, when it's done well, you'll never forget it. And the comic book form gives you the tools to do that. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I always I have to praise letterers because I always say they're the unsung heroes of the business. Yeah. They are the delivery system for the story. Yeah, it's true. You know, and, and if the lettering isn't up to snuff, you don't realize it consciously, 
but your brain is kind of scrambling that story a little bit. Yeah. And when that lettering is, has flow and artistry to it, uh, it flows into your brain more easily. And, and the best letterers are artists with a capital A. Yeah, damn right. Uh, are there any characters that uh, you have not had a chance to really dive into that you're kind of like, I wish I got a, I, I, maybe one day I want to I tackle that, that, that guy you know, or gal. I've been lucky enough that between the comic book stuff and the animation stuff, yeah. I've written like dozens, hundreds. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, just just from I, the teams I, alone, you've covered yeah. so many. But I mean, like yeah. exclusively, like I want to yeah, talk I'm, about I'm trying, I'm trying to think. I'm trying. You know, what, what comes to mind for me almost instantly when somebody asks that question is I always thought that Giffen and McGuire and and I would do a great Fantastic Four. Oh, shit. You know, <laughs> I, I was, we could just do like a six issue Fantastic Four miniseries. Um, it, it, it would so suit what we do. Agreed. You know? um, and, and so there's that because I never wrote. I may have used some of the individual characters in a story here or there, but I never got to really write the Fantastic Four. No. Um, and, you know, Impossible Incorporated, this book from IDW that Mike Cavalier and I are doing, yeah. is, is part of that is me getting a little bit of my Fantastic Four Jones in there, you know? Excellent. Because yeah. um, um, it's one of my favorite series of all time, especially, you know, the Stan and Jack stuff. It's just like oh, some sure. of the greatest comics ever made. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what other, of any other characters. You know, I've done a lot of Batman stories over the years, lots of them, mm -hmm. between again, between animation and comics, a ton of them. Yeah. But I've never... It's always been miniseries, you know, or one shots or cartoons. I've never done had the, the, the room to do an ongoing Batman title. No, it's true. It's, it'd yeah. be interesting thing to do to have the room and the time to spend a year on it, something with that character. Um, yeah, really explore like. But again, it's not like I haven't done Batman. I have, so it's not like oh, if only I could write Batman. Right. If it's only like, you hadn't written yeah. one of the greatest Dark Knight Return, like or, you know, Going Sane. <laughs> it's one of the most celebrated books. So, oh. so like, I'm trying to think of any other characters, you know, um, it's more like certain characters I would like to return to, I think. Really? Cause you know, I, yeah, yeah. I always hesitate to ask that question because I know a lot of people are like, oh, I said, I think everything I need to say about that character. Well, with, with, with a lot of characters I have, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think with Spider-Man, like as much, like I've loved working on this animated Spider-Man, but that version of Spider-Man is slightly different. So, different, so it's yeah. a fresh take. Um, uh, but in terms of Spider-Man, I really I've done so much Spider-Man work between two runs on Spectacular and, and Amazing and one shots and Craven and you know miniseries and I've, I've done my share. Yeah. But I would return to Ben Riley. I love that character. Oh really? Uh, you know, because I I feel like I've you know I I have there's a, so much more to say with Ben Riley yeah. uh, and other char other characters like you know Doctor Strange. I had a short run on and did the the graphic novel into Shambhala with Dan Green, which I think yes. is one of the best things I've yeah. ever done. But uh, you know, Doctor Strange is just a character that I love so much that it would be nice to go back and, and play with that character. Because I got on the ongoing series, and by about three issues in, the word had already come down that the book was canceled. Right. So once I finished my first arc, my last three or four issues where the editor asked me, could you tie up these loose threads from other stories, you know? <laughs> Which was, you know, I, I managed to make stories that I enjoyed telling, but they weren't necessarily the stories I had planned to tell. Yeah. That's... You know, and, and, and Silver Surfer is another character that I absolutely adore and for a lot of behind-the-scenes reasons, didn't always get to do exactly what I wanted to do with the character. Although, again, I got to work with Ron Garney and John yeah. J. Muth and tell some really good stories there. But that's a character that I love. And, and I, lo you know, I really love all the DC mystical characters. When mm -hmm. I was writing Justice League Dark, I was in heaven, Phantom Stranger, you know, because yeah. Justice League Dark, you could tap into all those characters. Swamp Thing, I mean, the, the Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson on Swamp Thing, some mm -hmm. of my favorite comics of all time. And, and I got to use... Swamp Thing and Justice League Dark, 
but boy, to write to write Swamp Thing, to write a Swamp Thing story or two or three or four, that mm-hmm. would be real fun, you know. Yeah. But any of its mystical characters, if you dangle those in front of me, I start to salivate and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm off and running, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Jam, I won't hang on. I, I won't keep you too long. Uh, I guess we'll just wrap it up from here. But uh, we've tackled so much. Uh, I, I gotta say, would you ever be interested in coming back and doing another episode of this? Of course, because always happy to talk to I, you. I feel like we've done. We've only scratched the surface. We didn't really get a chance to talk about everything. But you know, when, you've we doing, when you've been doing it as long as I've been doing it. Yeah. I remember a couple of years back, I was at WonderCon and I did a spotlight panel about my career, right? You know, yeah. My son was actually there. He was interviewing me. And we, I learned the lesson, don't do it chronologically. So we started <laughs> to do it chronologically. And maybe we got to 1989. You know? <laughs> and you're like, oh, that was up. All right, that's it. We got to go now, folks. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I understand that. That you know, it's a testament to your craft the, and and your skill. The fact is, like, you've been. It, it's it's not insulting, I think, to say you've been writing for a long time. But no, it's not insulting. I can't lie about who I am and exactly. how long I've been around. You know? uh, yeah. Once you look at the, the the bibliography, it's like, oh shit. But uh, everything feels youthful. It, it's like uh, when Marty Scorsese made Wolf of Wall Street. It feels like a 29 year old made that movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. When you pick up Scooby Apocalypse or any book that you're working on now, you watch the Constantine movie, it feels like, you know, a 20-year-old a, a is working on this. Like, it's some, it, there's a youthful enthusiasm and skill like that that is infused in your work that is never really dulled. And well, thank you. Thank I'm, you. You know, it's funny. I was uh, talking to one of the animation producers I was working with. And he said something similar, and he said, like, no, you know, like, we've worked with other guys your age, and, and they write like they're old. <laughs> you, know? like, you, you write like you're young. And part of me is like, wait, am I supposed to be in some? No, no, right. I think that was really a big compliment. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. No, I, I, it's, just, it's just fresh, you know? And, it's, and it stays that way. Well, I appreciate uh, that. You know, I, and I think it goes back to that thing we were talking about, because every story is a new story. Right. And, and for those of us that are in this business – Let's face it, we all have a very alive and active 10-year-old still living in our psyches. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a, a, a writer, an artist, or a reader, you know, we're, we're very, very connected to that innocence and enthusiasm and imagination. And the key as you go along is to, is to always stay connected to that. It's for God's sake, especially if you're writing comic books, you know, yeah. you got you got to stay connected to that that level of innocence, enthusiasm, and imagination. Um, and, and I guess that's what's kept me going. Because there's a part of me that still will go, Really, Spider Man? Cool, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and and every new story, whether it's something original, like and watch me get the plugs back, like uh, the Girl in the Bay or Impossible Inc., mm-hmm. where you're working on somebody's character, you have to come from that innocent place. Um, you know, they talk about in in Chinese uh, philosophy, beginner's mind, to always approach, no matter how long you've been doing it, uh, whether it's a spiritual practice or anything else. With a be- with a beginner's mind, with that level of innocence and curiosity, and also letting go of this idea that you know everything. Yeah, and that's what that's what keeps you young, and that's what keeps the work young. I think. I think but I really right. appreciate you saying that. That was oh. really nice. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. And uh, listen, if this hasn't convinced you, go to jmdmateus.com. You can find it in the description below this video, uh, and explore more of this man's work. You see his name on a book, you buy it. If you see his name on a marquee, you watch it. Uh, and you will not be disappointed. Uh, JM, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, Thank you, Sal. I'm looking forward to having you again, and we'll see you guys next time here on the Elseworlds Exchange. Thanks a lot for watching.